So we, I believe, and I'm talking out of my depth here, but I believe at work, we have this like tiered environment variable system where there's a, there's like a set of global keys that any environment can share. Mm-hmm. And then you go down a low, a level and, and then there's like overrides for particular keys that you can have at individual levels. I didn't know. How are you dealing with secrets across your kind of multi-tenant, single-tenant distribution there? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. You're listening to Working Code with your hosts, one of whom probably just wrote a new JavaScript library, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. Okay, here we go. It is show number 46. And on today's show, we're going to talk about secrets management versus premature optimization. There's a a balance you have to strike there. So before we get to our triumphs and fails today, uh, quick note, I'm in Washington, D.C. at the moment, preparing for an event. And so you might hear some car honks and train noises and sirens and who knows what behind me. And if you do, I apologize. But hey, at least you got a new episode, right? (laughs) Okay, so shootings, <laughs> y'all city folk. Yeah, with that out of the way, let's do our triumphs and fails. And it looks like it's my turn to go first. So I'm going to start us off with a very tiny little fail that, when coupled with some bad timing, became a significantly bigger fail, like a, a really bad fail, it makes you want to throw up type of thing. That I turned into a triumph. That again turned into a fail. <laughs> That's cool. a journey. Yeah, yeah. It's a circle so of So we have a bunch of Lambda functions, little microservices to do things. And because when you're developing these things, you're not sure if you're going to continue to change them or whatever, the the first iteration of it eventually becomes production. And then if you're not careful, you find yourself without a QA environment, right? You just have production. And when you need to make a change, you deploy it up to production. And there you go. You don't have a great way to test in QA. Because it's like integrated in your stack. That was our situation with something like eight or so of our lambdas. And we've been doing, we've had that situation for the better part of like the last two or three years now. And we've survived off hours deployments or whatever, that sort of thing. Just being careful. Well, I did a lambda deploy recently earlier this week. And because of really, really, really bad timing, I made a really big mistake for a really important email. Basically, the so when we render an email, we have the text body and the HTML body. So if you have like a text-only mail client, it shows you nicely formatted text instead of HTML. Well, I swapped the two. <laughs> so yeah. if you if you got if you were an HTML reader, you just saw like a plain text email. But even worse, if you were a text-only mail client, then uh, you got a whole oh bunch of HTML boy. as the text of your email. And and making it worse, this email was t- targeted at like the VIPs of VIPs of this oh, wow. audience, right? It was like the board of trustees of the university. So that was, that's why I was like feeling like I, I wanted to vomit. And it's just a very bad day for me. Anyway, I, I turned it into a, a little bit of a triumph because I, I used this as motivation. I said, I am not doing anything else until every single one of these things has a proper QA environment and at least some tests. Okay, so that was a triumph, and I did that. And then here's the the last fail. I said, we've had this situation for the better part of like two plus years now. It took me one day to add QA (laughs) and some testing for all of these things. Like, why were you waiting? Exactly. So long, yeah. Oh, so it's a roller coaster of a week for me, but at least it's behind me. 
Wait, what was the last fail? I don't know what it was. That it only took a day to to do something mm-hmm. that we've been waiting on for years. Okay, so it was a long term failure. But see, yeah, it's still yeah, a it, it was like we've been kicking the can on it because yeah. it just it felt a little like eh, we don't really need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, we did. You needed it. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I'm so sorry. Congratulations, and I'm so sorry. Thank you. (laughs) What is a text-only email client these days? Does that exist? I think you can configure Gmail to show you you only text, and like you can do that. Most of them, you can say like only show me text, and it's probably for like accessibility reasons. So here's the other piece. We so all that stuff I did. I pull out the the part. So the Gmail message actually has parts is what it's called. Like if you go look up the uh, model for how they actually structure their emails, they have the parts. So each message has its part and it has a plain text version Mm -hmm. of the HTML. So whenever I log everything that came through on the email, I don't log the HTML version. I log the plain text version so that when I want to put this back out, I just have the text from the email as opposed to all the the HTML with it. So I go pull out the plain text for everything we're doing. Your, this is for that service you were building, right? Yeah, yeah, for the autoresponder. Yep, because cool. I don't want all of the embedded HTML stuff. I don't want to know where the divs were. I don't care about all the blocks. I just want the body of the message. Right, and if this yep. is an email, uh, I'm not, I've kind of wondered that. If you write an email on your phone and you put in some hyperlinks or whatever because you're a power email user on your phone, yeah. does that send, I mean, it's got to send it as an HTML email because then you get the email and it's got links in it. Does that also send a plain text version of that? and like? I'll have to try that and see what it looks like. Yeah, I mean, everything I've found shows that it all gets stripped out. So all my testing showed it very pretty. It's just plain text. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure that it does something. The question is just how good it is. Oh, yeah. Gmail's amazing and just does things magically to make it work. Don't question it. Just accept it. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you all handcrafting the the text version of the emails that go out or or are they somehow generated from the HTML version? Bespoke emails. I mean, our, yeah, our tool is very much for email marketing professionals. And so they want that fine grained control. They have, they might send slightly different content in a text version than a HTML version. Hmm. Cool, cool. So, yeah, so that's me. How about you, Ben? What do you got going on? I'm going to go with a fail. And this is sort of a theme of mine. This is not, not exactly imposter syndrome. I'm just going to categorize this under envy. And lately, Things have just felt challenging professionally at work, just programming, not with work itself, just the work itself seems hard. And I've been doing this for a fairly long time. And a lot of it just doesn't seem to get easier. And and I look at people who, from the outside, and I know this is definitely a skewed perspective, but from the outside, it looks like some people just, things happen more easily for them. Uh just, I don't know. And I'm envious. I, I wish things <laughs> happened easier for me. Sometimes I wish it didn't always feel like such a grind. But so I know that's just an emotional situation and not the reality. But the fail I, there is I'm not able to fend off the feelings. I'm on the opposite side of you. I tend to feel guilty because things just happen. And I feel really lucky all the time that things just kind of work out and that's awesome. Things just go great. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get being on the other side, though, because it just feels lucky. Like, I just feel like I land in the right spot at the right time for it to just go right. So, 
Wow, way to make him feel bad. Sorry, Ben. <laughs> no, I wasn't no. trying to make you feel bad. I mean, it's not that I'm any better. It's not. It's just I do feel like lucky overall. Just as a person. I'm with you, Ben. I, I feel it's like I, there's stuff like I've written and it's like worked great for years. And all of a sudden stuff stops working, right? It's like there's these new challenges and I don't know. My stuff hasn't really changed significantly. And so why is it so hard? Why can't it just like run and just be okay? Because now I got to stop because I'm off to other stuff now. And like, why do I have to come back to this? This has been great for years. And now all of a sudden I'm having to troubleshoot stuff and I don't understand why now. Why yeah, is nothing it, changed? Yeah. Nothing. Why is it breaking now? Right. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. And it just frustrates me. It's like, I feel like I can't get ahead because it's like, all right, I wrote this two years ago. It's been working fine. And all of a sudden it's pulling me back in this pit of despair. And uh, <laughs> I don't want to be working on this. I want to be working on new stuff that makes money. So yeah, I feel that it's just that level of complexity. It's, it's n- no software you write doesn't live in a vacuum, right? Yeah. And not necessarily dovetailing with what you're saying, but just in terms of passage of time, I also find that the more I learn, the the more I'm aware of how little I know and and mm. how badly i've built things in the past so it's almost like dunning kruger yeah the more knowledge i amass and i try to amass a lot of knowledge it feels like all it does is illustrate in the grand (laughs) scheme of things how little i actually know and how much more can be learned and that it will never be possible and that in the in this world of expanding technology it's only going to become harder and harder Mm. oh i will totally second that yeah yeah I meant lucky, like I find shoes on sale. Not my code's great. Let's just be clear here on I'm lucky, okay? (laughs) Things just go right. (laughs) Just the important stuff. Shoes. That's awesome. Hey, Tim, what about you? So I don't vacation well. It's a fail. I mean, I had this whole week off. So this week is, uh, it's a spring or fall break for the kids. So long in advance, I'm like, I'm going to take the week off. I'm coming off, uh, you know, a week in Vegas last week for work. And I know this is really like first world whining here, but I, I can't, <laughs> it's like, I just can't unplug. I, I worked, I keep working probably like four hours every day just because I can't, everyone is sick in our house. They don't have COVID, but they do have like bad colds. So it's like, we were going to go somewhere. We didn't really have definite plans. It's probably, and that's probably a good thing, but it's like everyone got sick. I came back from, from Vegas and everyone's coughing and sneezing and they sound terrible. And like, even though I don't have COVID, I don't want to take some coughing children into a public space and people look at me funny. So mm-hmm. it's like, we're not going anywhere. I'm staying home. Uh, the best thing I did today was I took a nap before the show. That's why I was late for the show. Sorry guys. I was, <laughs> I just was napping. It's like, that's the most exciting. That's the most pathetic vacation ever. I, I took a week of PTO and all I can say I really done differently is I, I've napped more than usual. So. Yeah, I feel like a real failure when it comes to vacationing. No, it's a staycation. You need it. I, I don't but not like with I sick family, it. though. I'm that's bored. Yeah. I'm, I really want to do something. I mean, you're working, <laughs> so that's not good. Oh, no, <laughs> so, not, see, not for me, good. that's when I would spend time like learning a new technology or catching up on other hobbies. Sometimes the motivation's not there, and napping's way better. Yeah, yeah napping's way better. Yeah, I'll give you that. Napping's way better. Yeah, we had plans. Like My son was like, we're going to do some more blacksmithing. We're going to get better at our blacksmithing. And, of course, he's not feeling good, so... We're not doing that. So yeah, I just feel bad. I just feel like it's been a waste of a week. Well, I hope you guys get better. I'm fine. Well, I hope yeah. the family gets better then I'm and absolutely. you don't catch it. Yeah. Oh no, I've been wearing a mask mm-hmm. in the house, spraying Lysol everywhere. I don't want to get whatever they have. <laughs> they sound terrible. So 
Yeah, they must have what I had because I'm just getting over it. You know, I was sick for two and a half weeks with yeah, that. It's, yeah, it's, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's been bad. So yep, yep. anyway, that's my failure. How about you, Carol? Oh, I have a triumph. Uh, I'm going to a conference. Us. Yes. Ooh. Ooh. I found out this week I get to go to reInvent to AWS. Oh, so cool. I will be out there November 29th through December 3rd in Vegas. And the best part is I'll be back a week. And then the following week, I'm going back for my birthday. (laughs) (laughs) To Vegas? Good to be in Vegas for two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited about the conference. This is going to be so much fun. Reinvent, my understanding, is that it's a massive conference. Like 50,000 people or something. Lots. Like Hmm. Salesforce. How do you prepare for something like that? Well, I'm going to go ahead and reserve my seats and everything because they want you to reserve seats in this. They don't want anyone kind of walking around. So I'm going to do that. So I'll already have a game plan of what I plan on learning. So I'm going to pre-study what I want to learn to make sure I have a good understanding of it. So when I go into it, I know what I'm going to be doing. And then they are requiring everyone vaccinated. So that's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Vegas is, was really strict about vaccination mm-hmm. and masks and stuff. And mask, yep. Yep. Are you going with a group of people from work or just you? Yeah, it's uh, four. I think there's four of us going or five of us. Oddly enough, people didn't sign up. Like they were like, who wants to go put in? We'll talk about it. And only a couple people said, I want to go. It's Hmm. we kind of have this a little issue of people not wanting to learn new things and kind of not wanting to venture Mm -hmm. outside what they know. They like being in their comfort zone. So we have a handful of people who are constantly like challenging the status quo and wanting to do better and wanting to change what's going on. And those are the people who are like, I want to go. Let's go do this thing. So, yeah. I I can't imagine an Amazon conference. I mean, do they have like multiple tracks for all 5,000 of their services? That must be ridiculous (laughs) content. Oh, you you can't imagine. Yeah. I'm excited about some of the leadership stuff. Like that's some of the more interesting tracks I want to go sit in on. What do you mean by that? Like a lot of their big leader people are going to be there just talking about general leadership stuff, like leading teams, managing teams, building your client base, those kinds of things. Yeah. Cool. Better person. Be a better person. Yeah. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Sounds like fun. I've never been to reInvent. I think there, I think I heard that it's a hybrid model this year, which they may have not done before where you can be in person and I think maybe watch live online. I'm not yeah, the live didn't seem to have everything. It had the mm. keynotes, it had breakout sessions, it had the leadership track, and it had a couple other things. But I don't think everything is going to be is going to be online. But yeah, a lot of it is online, and it's free if you want to do it online. So where if you go, it's kind of expensive. It's like seventeen hundred dollars. So. All right. Well, who wants to kick off this week's topic? Ben, was that kind of your ballpark yeah, here? Yeah, sure. So we have, we're in the middle of a penetration test at work. Oh, and that word. <laughs> unlike <laughs> previous penetration tests Ugh. where people have been given sandbox environments and they can basically try to attack the system in any way that they want. This penetration test involved us actually giving source code to certain parts of the application over to the people who are testing so that they could try to find lower level vulnerabilities that, that they might not have been able to stumble across. And one of the things that they flagged in a couple of really old parts of the application are some hard-coded secrets that the two services would use to authenticate against each other or sign a request so that it can't be manipulated. Best practices is now to not keep that in your source code, obviously, uh, and to keep it in something <laughs> like an environment variable or something that can be loaded 
on the fly, but wouldn't necessarily be exposed if the source code was seen by a malicious actor. So I've spent the better part of the week rotating some of these legacy secrets that are in really old parts of the code. And it's been really frustrating because it's not as simple as just taking a value putting it into an environment variable and then reading it from the environmental uh, environment variable instead because these are used to communicate across services. So because I can't deploy multiple services at the exact same moment, I can't change the value that I use to sign a request on one side and not change it to validate right. the request on the other side. Otherwise, the communication will fail. Right. So what I've had to do is take these single values and turn them into an array or like a two tuple where mm-hmm. the first value is the old hard coded token. And then the new value is an environment based token so that now the receiving service can check multiple tokens. Then I can get that into production. I can go to the calling service, have it updated to use a new environment variable for the new token. And then I can go back to the old service and then deprovision the old token that was part of the array. And it's just been a very frustrating experience. And it makes me think about best practices in terms of how I would organize tokens going forward. And part of it, uh, I always, again, I get stuck between this premature optimization mindset and then the just get it done mindset mm-hmm. where, so uh, to step back, like the easiest possible thing to do if two services have to communicate is have an environment variable that literally both of those services have access to so that when the services come on, they can share it. The problem with that is that they have direct access to the same environment variable. Like they're pulling it out of the same shared space, which then couples those services fairly tightly together. So then the, the next thing would be to be have each service have its own environment variable that happened to coincidentally have the same values in them so that you could independently change those two token values which decouples the systems in terms of where they're accessing their data, but still keeps them coupled because now they have to communicate. Then like the next level of complexity would be to have multiple tokens that each service can use so that it can, or I guess multiple tokens that the receiving service can use so that it can rotate tokens without breaking the caller. And then we can do the dance of, of kind of incrementally changing the tokens across the various service relationships. And then like the ultimate level of complexity is actually not even having Hard code. It's just use Kubernetes. <laughs> <laughs> well, to have something where instead of hard coding these values, almost treat your service like, like, like a software as a service where you could actually maybe even expose a dashboard where people could come in and register provision tokens mm-hmm. and then could then yeah. be responsible for deprovisioning and provisioning new tokens like you would do if you were using like a Twilio API mm-hmm. or a Stripe yeah. API. We have to go in and actually manage your tokens. Yep. And I, like part of me wants to go super complicated and be like, yeah, if anybody wants to call my service, I should be able to give them a dashboard where they can provision stuff, but that's a wicked amount of work. And then would probably be really frustrating for anyone who needs to com- consume our services. So what you need to do, because they're not used to it, yeah. create a new microservice that just exists <laughs> for the purpose of key management and an application can just like announce, Hey, I exist and I need a key and I need you to create, like keep this running list of my last three keys. And I, okay, I'll generate a new one. And I, I feel like something like that exists though. Isn't that what, I don't know, or, but why, or, why would you use an existing thing? Why not write it yourself? <laughs> <laughs> joking, so joking. Oh my goodness. 
I guess there's not a, there's not a specific thought or question in my rambling there. Apologies, but I guess it's more just generally secret management and like the levels of complexity and, and where's that right balance between this is easy enough to use, but also secure, but not mm-hmm. terribly flexible. I don't mm-hmm. know. I don't know how you guys approach this kind of stuff. I, I got dinged for a secret that's in the code in a pull request or this week when I was doing all those uh, QA mm-hmm. environments for our Lambda functions. And my response was like, yeah, but we have a bunch of these lambdas and they all do. It's like the exact same SDK using the exact same key and they're all doing the exact same thing. And so like, you're not wrong, but also like, <laughs> look over there. So, right? you said and, there are lambdas using it, right? Yeah. So we could do environment variables. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Why not do and, it in the parameter store or put it in secret and then just pull it in and it's never in code. It's stored in AWS. Again, you're not wrong. And <laughs> so it's like the, like that conversation we were having about the Twitch code leak where like, yeah. see, there's a siren. I don't know if you guys can hear that. Yeah. We were talking about the Twitch code leak before right. we started recording. So we should step back. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the long and short yeah. of it is Twitch's okay. code leaked and there were some people like tearing it apart online and critiquing the code. And the, there was some conversation about that. And a pair, I guess the person kind of leading the conversation was saying like, yeah, but no code is perfect code. And there's always constraints for we have a business to run, right? We have to balance doing things the right way and doing them perfectly with getting things done in a profitable way. Um, so, I mean, long term, absolutely. I think that we'll be pulling those secrets out of that code. And probably the first stop we'll do is environment variables. And when that becomes mm-hmm. problematic, then we'll do something more significant, like using a, a secrets manager yeah. situation. But I mean, we have other things. We have lots of things that use environment variables. So that would be the first place that I would think to look if I was going to rotate keys. And I would be confused when, when I didn't environment variable. What? How does that work in practice? So when you configure a Lambda function or a Windows server or whatever, there's a little config section where you can say, I, I want to add an environment variable. And this is just sort of a system variable. You give it a name and a value, and both are strings. And so, for example, you can say... The environment itself, like the most common one for JavaScript is node underscore env. And so you'll see that to be development or QA. I guess test is more common than QA and production. But you can also, you could easily make that your S3 access key and, and secret or whatever they call those things. There's still um, text though at this point. Right. If you do it this way. Yeah. Yep. Still plain text. Although mm-hmm. I think I'm not positive. Don't quote me on this, but I'm almost sure that the, Environment variables that you configure in the Lambda dashboard in the AWS console are encrypted when they're stored. They're decrypted to show you in the dashboard and encrypted. Mm-hmm. And then when you, they, when the function gets invoked, they get decrypted and sent to the function. So it's, I, I don't know. Sounds accurate, but still visible. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anybody who would have access to edit the function in the case of Lambda, would it be able right. to see that mm-hmm. secret? And that might be a yeah. problem, right? Absolutely. And, like, and my company yeah. is not because there's three of us and we all have the keys to the kingdom. But I can absolutely see plenty of companies out there that wouldn't want that, would want their developers nope. to be able to. <laughs> and so that actually yeah. reminds me of you have GitHub Actions, right? So you can set up secrets in your GitHub organization at the organization level and you can set them up at the repository level. And those are available to your GitHub Actions so that you can do things like deploys or whatever else call APIs for various things and the keys themselves that like you can see what the, what secrets are available by name, but you can't see their value. And actually Mm -hmm. once you set it, 
you there is no way to see what the value is. It's a write only interface. You can overwrite it and update it with a new value, but there is no way to see what to the current it. value is. Yeah. Yo, uh, sorry, I, if I can interject there because you triggered me. <laughs> we had to do this thing a while back at work, also involving token rotation across different services. And I remember there was this one team where they needed to be able to rotate across two different tokens. So they wanted to set up an environment variable that was a comma delimited list of tokens that they would check. And I, and my point to them was that sounds really challenging because when you need to add a token later on, you essentially need to know the earlier tokens on that list because there's no tooling at work where you can just say, add this value to an existing environment variable. You can either set environment variables or create new ones in mm. our platform right. dashboard. And so I'm like, you'd essentially have to keep stored locally your a secrets list. that are in yeah. production so that when you need to add one later, you can mm-hmm. add a new well, list item and then set the whole value. And they're like, oh, well, no, we could just ask the platform people to do that for us. And then we don't have to worry about it. And I'm like, yeah, or you could just use two different variables. I wanted people to start using this one pattern that I learned about where you use essentially a, a current token and a future token. Mm-hmm. And you can you always check against either the current token or the future token. Then as you're rotating, eventually the future token gets moved into the current token and the future token can be changed or it can be nullified. Yep. And huh. that way you're only ever setting whole values. You never need to know the the value that previously existed. I but like that. My, I like, no matter how hard I argued and shook my fist, <laughs> they were like, no, comma delimited list is easy. Get off my lawn, old man. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, I mean... Maybe this is a bad practice that we're doing. So we don't put the secrets in source code, but it we do. It is part of our deploy process. We don't use Lambda functions or anything like that. But when we deploy code, there's a config file that's outside the project, right? So it's somewhere else on the the hard drive on the Linux machine, and the system knows about it. And it goes and looks it up there. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if you want to change it, you just you change the config file as part of your deploy process. Is that bad practice or it's yeah, I mean it's yeah, short I, short answer, yes. Yeah. I mean, because I think it's, they, a, it's they, a continuum. It's a well, continuum. I feel like if someone got closer on to bad. the machine and got the source code off, they're gonna have that config path. Well if they got on the machine, they got everything anyway. Yeah, so. they can read the environment. You're already screwed. Yeah. So uh, I think where this one, this particular approach falls down is any, then anybody that has any access to your source code repo, even an intern that you hire to work on a thing can sell your, your secrets. No, I thought you said the source that's not kept in source code, not kept not in source, source code. Yeah. It's not checked in. It's, it's not just, in the, it's, it lives as a text that like an admin who has rights to RDPN. Yeah. So basically the okay. deployment team yeah. would know it. Okay. Yeah. It sounded like it's it was in your a, repo, but it's outside like the no, web. It's, on the repo. No, it's outside okay. the repo. Yeah. So a Don't little better. Like that. We're, we're in the repository. You'll have something like a, dot env dot template file mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. gives you fake values but shows you the data structure mm-hmm. and then locally and then you'll have a, a in your git ignore file you'll yeah. have a git ignore the real version and then someone hard codes a text file in production with the real values and you have your development values locally but they never Seen get committed that. to the yeah yeah i've done that for personal things yeah it's super easy so the way that we do it with our Lambdas that I was mentioning earlier, Adam, is we put it in Secret Manager or we put them in Parameter Store. Mm-hmm. So um, like, for example, our service user that has access to actually run this application that I have, which would have access to everyone's email, the 
private key for that, which is used to authenticate into Gmail, is stored in AWS in the Secrets Manager. And the way that gets generated is DevOps goes into GCP, creates the cert, which I can never see because it's once you pull it, it's a one-time pull and it's just there. Then they upload it and then that's it. So it only ever exists in one person's hand and then in the secret manager. So if any developer comes behind me, they can't see what the key is. They can only get the encrypted version of it and then read it. So they're just sitting there with it with no ability to change it or use it. So then production's the same way. So then, you know, that key's out there and it's being used, but nobody can ever touch it or change it. Only so the one DevOps can. Is there like a SDK or something that you can connect to to pull secrets out of the secrets manager at runtime to use them? Or does it get somehow like pushed in as an environment variable at runtime or like how do you access those? Yeah, I just straight up go hit AWS and say, hey, go grab me the parameters or go get me the secrets. And I put it into a whole nother class that I've created, which technically goes into like the environment variables. But yeah, I don't know if it's at runtime, but I'm assuming it's at runtime. Yeah. Okay. But at what point is it being decrypted? It sounds like at runtime. Look at that. It sounds like it's at runtime. But it can be decrypted. And I can't get the text of it. You can't, but obviously something can. I mean, and it, no, I mean, the service running it can't. Like the actual AWS SDK isn't pulling in like the text version of it. It's just giving me something to send across. Hmm. And we're out of our depth. Yeah. <laughs> right? I don't yeah. follow. Maybe Somewhere it's being you. decrypted. Yeah, maybe. Like I can't see it. If I go console log this out, I just get crap. Like there's nothing that I could use from that. How is that possible? That's or maybe your secrets are all just a series of poop emojis. <laughs> no, I mean, it just looks like encrypted. Like it looks like gibberish on the screen. Like if you go dump this out, mm-hmm. maybe I should go back and look and make sure I understand it a little bit better. I figured it out. It's with IMA rolls. It's, I say IMA. It's, it's IAM, right? I, I, is that? I, 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 I either say I am or IAM. Yeah. Either way, it's awful. Yeah. So I'm a roll. I figured it out. So I had to open the code to see what was going on with it. So in dev, you can see it, but in production, you don't have the ability to run decrypt your role as a developer to the production. Whenever you pull it, you can't run decrypt on it. So you can't see the string version of it. So that's where I was off at. So. Okay. Crazy. You can, you but you have to have the role to actually decrypt it. Yeah. And we don't have any put rights, so we can't save anything. But when the code is executing, it uses a role that can read it? You yes, just it can. Okay. I can't execute the production lambda in that role. I'm not, I don't even have access to the production lambda. Like, I can't see it. I can only go through Jenkins to deploy it. But in theory, you could write some code that, that decrypts the secret and emails it to yourself. It wouldn't get past code review. Yeah, it wouldn't get past code review. But yeah, I mean, I guess but technically, technically you could. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Jeff Bezos knows mm-hmm. it. Yeah. yeah. I guess technically. <laughs> so yeah, so that's where it was. That's how it's working. Sorry about that. That's all right. It can be decrypted. That's good to know. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, Ben, so one thing I found interesting is that you said that your pen test, is a word I prefer than penetration, is you gave your source code. So we've been doing pen tests for decades and never once have we had to give over our source code, which I mean, I think it's actually a good idea to give it because hackers these days probably can, if they they can compromise your system, they can probably get a hold of your source code at some point. And, and utilize that. But yeah, never once have we ever had to do that. It's always, they're doing port discovery. They're doing yeah. running test kits, script kits against known known vectors, which is kind of traditionally where hackers are going to try to get you rather than actually having <laughs> access to your source code. It's funny because, so at work, we have a, a WAF, a web application firewall. Mm-hmm. 
And it's a complete black box to me. I have no idea how it works or how the rules work, but I can't tell you how many requests make it to the application where in the URL, people are requesting like 17 dot dot slashes, passwords dot mm-hmm. INI. And I'm like, how is the WAF letting this through? This will never be a valid request against the system. No one will ever ask for an INI file or right. password file. It's frustrating. As far as giving the source code, I don't have all the details, but I think maybe this is a prerequisite for some special type of certification for the system, but don't quote me on that. Okay. Yeah, maybe it's coming down the road for me too. We'll see. But one thing that we have a complexity at work is we have a, we call them private clouds, but essentially it's, we have our multi-tenant environment where we have the majority of our customers And then we have isolated copies of that environment that we call private cloud environments for specific high contract customers. And I know, Adam, you have a number of clients based on Git branches. I can't remember. Mm. I I forget what your strategy was, but PTSD. um, That's my strategy. So we, I believe, and I'm talking out of my depth here, but I believe at work, we have this like tiered environment variable system where there's a, there's like a set of global keys that any environment can share. Mm-hmm. And then you go down a low, a level and, and then there's like overrides for particular keys that you can have at individual levels. I didn't know how are you dealing with secrets across your kind of multi-tenant, single-tenant distribution there? I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, certainly I don't want to, if, if it's sensitive, let's not talk about it, but it, it's all very complicated on my end. I mean, the long and the short of it is we are moving to an architecture where we will have far fewer secrets than we already do. And we already have very few. I mean, we're talking about like database passwords because we have customers, every customer has their own database. So they all have a separate user account and password so that should one of those applications get compromised, you can't then traverse across all of our databases. And then it's basically just like, IAM user uh, accounts or not user accounts, but they have like userless accounts where you can like you just have a key and secret that you can use to mm. interact with APIs and SDKs to be able to use various services, S3 and whatever. And so we have, like I was mentioning before, a few of those are still in the code. And but by and large, we were moving those over to environment variables and we are moving as much as possible everything over to be multi-tenant. As far as I know, we have not offered anybody a private cloud situation. And I don't expect that to come up because we are not targeting, and I, I don't see a future where we target government like any government anywhere, we are very strictly only looking at higher education, colleges and universities. It's also very expensive to have duplicate copies. of It is. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that wasn't a very interesting answer, I don't think, but there you go. That's the truth. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. I Environment variables are one of those things where early on in my career, I thought it was super complicated. It seemed like black magic. Yeah. Yeah. And then once you realize that it's just a value being pulled from somewhere, you're like, oh, that's not so complicated. Mm-hmm. And and I know you've been transitioning over to Lucy CFML away from Adobe ColdFusion for parts of your stuff, <laughs> for parts, just parts. And one of the cool things about Lucy is that you can actually just pull the environment variables yep. right out of the server scope. Yep. Which is, I mean, if you're coming from a Node background, Node is basically, what is it? It's process. Process. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yep. So... Um, I love those little conveniences. Yep, yeah. yep. 
And so, I mean, we took advantage, took full advantage of that, right? So as we were making that transition, we were coming from wholly every single instance, every environment for every customer was uh, very bespoke, right? Hand rolled. Mm-hmm. We'd log on to an EC2 instance. All right, you're going to be this and, and go and configure the data source and go and configure this and that. And that just doesn't scale, right? Once you get to a certain point, it's you spend your entire day just managing instances. So what we, where we like transition, this is like three or four steps down that road. But now we have like a single AMI that we will deploy when we want to bring up a new customer. And you just sign in and you fill in a couple of environment variables in Windows. And then Lucy and other things on that box will pick those up and, and run with it. So you're our production for this customer and here are some secrets sort of situation. Very nice. One thing that just occurred to me is earlier in the call, I was talking about having shared tokens, shared secrets in terms of one service talking to another service. Mm -hmm. But we were also talking about email earlier. And you can almost think of email like a service that calls back into your own system because you might send out an email that contains links that have signed URLs somewhere inside of them that then have to call back to your system. And that signed URL has to be validated. So if you were to rotate a token that was used to sign an email that is now living in the wild in someone's email client inbox, you would break their ability to use that URL unless you had some sort of window of backwards compatibility for those kinds of tokens. So you're like, a token will exist for at least two weeks or something before it gets deprovisioned. That way, any email that's gone out that has a signed URL that calls back into our system would continue to work. Yeah, we don't do a whole lot with signed URLs, but we yeah. do send emails with like encoded links, right? You're sending email, you want to be able to track when somebody clicks on a link. So that link basically has to work in perpetuity or have a decent fallback. And that is a particular, it's not that difficult of a challenge to solve, but it just results in a good amount of cruft and just unhappiness in in my database. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, I going back to the what is premature optimization versus what is just the right way to do things, I almost feel like any token that gets used to generate a value that leaves the boundaries of your system should always have a current value and a future value because at some point in the future, you'll have to rotate it. And it's nice to just have that set up and have the logic in your application ready to go. And it's really not a lot of overhead, especially if it's very... In a list. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if it's a a set number, it's a current and a future, not an arbitrary array because you can very easily just compare two values. It's not an open-ended amount of information to look at. Security is fun. Security is hard. Yeah, It's almost like it's a a whole profession to itself. Right. Well, it's really interesting too, because in things, in things like the pen test, we've done sock audits and other various types of of, um, words are escaping me. That's all right. You heard the last episode, right? Yeah. (laughs) Five minutes trying to come up with the name Pulp Fiction. (laughs) that was funny but what's interesting with a lot of the security stuff is that you can push back against it it's not like the a company comes to you and here's the here's a handout of everything you need to change it's here are Mm. all of our suggestions some are critical some are mild some are low and then you can push back and say yeah this is low but we're not going to change it for x y and z reasons and and you can have a negotiation essentially with the company that's going to certify you and 
it's all very interesting. And there's a it's, lot of, it's um, almost like it's subjective. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of almost like political spin that gets mm-hmm. put on some of these things. But yeah. And th- and that's why I don't, a lot of these, these people that have been compromised, they've all had security audits. It's not like yeah. they, they, they went yeah. completely. And yeah. So, and the audit's only as good as the information you feed them. It's like the auditors can't look at absolutely everything. They ask you for proof and you give them proof and, but then if you don't volunteer the ugly stuff, they're never going to see it. Yeah. I mean, uh, an acceptable level of risk is I'm sure a phrase that gets tossed around a lot in those conversations. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So it's like, for instance, I don't know if I brought this up before. So like we deal with uh, a very big bank. I don't want to give their name out, but you know, their initials are WF <laughs> and they deal with credit cards and they do not do a PCI. Mm. They, they don't do PCI audits. You ask them for one, they refuse to give it to you. And, but they do. So what's interesting about that is according to the PCI uh, DSS audit, there's two things you have to know. You have to know what is their current PCI status. And so if they don't have one, you're like, well, their status is none. And then the second question is, do they acknowledge responsibility for the cardholder information while it's in their possession? And they'll do that. They'll say, yeah, well, we, we do our own thing. It's, uh, it's even better than PCI, they say. Um, and, uh, so they say, yeah, we, they take responsibility. So you can pass that. We've got like this guy, Carl in the back room, yeah, everyone else in the world. I've got to, got to give, I need a copy of your PCI DSS, please. And like, sure, here it is. But you know, these big banks are like, nope, can't yep. have it. Carl said it's okay. Yeah. Carl said, yeah, <laughs> our code's good. We, we and they even like list how long we've been in business, 180 years or whatever it's been. And uh, we have our own series of procedures that we follow that secure the card information while it's in our, like, okay, well, I just passed the PCI there on my side because you acknowledge that you handle it, but you, your status is fail. So, and that's okay. Is it though? I know. I don't think so. Particularly since like years ago, I saw Visa was like storing their backups and all the credit card numbers was like, were just in plain text stored on a, on a drive. Someone dug it out. This, this is probably like 10 years ago. I hope they got better since then. Congratulations to Shatner, who finally went to space. Yeah, did it happen? <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. He was speechless when he came down. He, he Well, I don't know. I mean, that, he normally kind of talks that way, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Very stunted speech. I don't know his Photoshop, but they, I saw a picture of him holding up a little sign, little piece of paper that said, suck it, Picard. Oh, <laughs> so I did not see that. Okay, well, this is the part of the episode where I tell you that uh, Working Code was brought to you by 36 poop emojis. Definitely not the mm-hmm. password to my email account. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners like you, if you like what we're doing here, you might want to consider supporting us on Patreon. And you can do that at patreon.com slash Pod. If you didn't already know, first of all, congratulations on being one of today's lucky 10,000. And second, Patreon is a way where you can kick in a few dollars a month to support the things that you like, and it helps keep the lights on around here. The entry-level tier starts at just $4 a month for us, and all patrons get the after show and early access to new episodes as soon as they're ready. And we also host the occasional game night where we get together on video chat and play all kinds of different games with each other. Of course, we need to thank our top patrons, Monty and Peter, so thank you guys so much for your support. And if patronizing podcasts isn't your thing, no worries. Just like Tim and Ted Lasso with their haters, we appreciate you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) If you enjoyed this episode, you should post about it on your social media of choice. Those word of mouth referrals help more than you might think. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your pod. Please send us your questions and your show topics on Twitter or Instagram at Working Code Pod or leave us a message at 512-253-2633. That's 512-253-CODE. 
or join our Discord, which is now public, and share yeah, yeah. your ideas there. Woo-woo. You can find the link to join our Discord at workingcode.dev slash Discord. Come join the party, guys. We'll catch you next week. And until then, remember, your heart matters even if it's in an environment variable. (laughs) (laughs) You've been listening to Working Code with your hosts, Adam, Ben, Carol, and Tim. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and review on your preferred podcast listening platform. We really appreciate that effort. We'll catch you on the next episode of Working Code.